and the rest of you may join me in Hebrews chapter 12. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we seek to run faithfully the race of life before you, there are any number of duties, commands to obey, actions to take. And certainly in this week, we are focused on our need to participate in our form of government here in this land by voting. And Lord, I pray that we will engage this duty seeking to elect those who we perceive to be as closely aligned to you and your will and your priorities as we are able. None are perfect. And again, our running the race is far from perfect. But we seek to do that which is consistent with you. But running the race involves so much more than specific actions. It has a great deal to do with our hearts and our minds, our attitude before you. Speak to us, I pray, from your word this morning about these things, that we may understand better how to run, with what attitude, in what frame of mind, and with what perspective. Guide us through your truth now, we pray. And may we hear and receive from you and act accordingly. In Christ, we pray. Amen. Therefore, all of that which we did in Hebrews 11, week after week after week, therefore, Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The Christian life pointed to here is clearly a battleground, not a playground. When you have a relationship with Christ by faith, you become a part of his body, the church. And you are therefore thrust onto a spiritual battlefield. It doesn't mean it's not a real one. It's a real battlefield, but it's one that we are to understand and see spiritually. We're thrust onto a spiritual battlefield. We are armed with forgiveness 
through Christ's blood. And we are secure in the Father's will. And we have power to live the new life by the Holy Spirit. These things are all provisions for the battle that we must engage in throughout our lives till he takes us home. They are not means of excusing ourselves from the battle. Many people seem to start the Christian life with a lot of noise and flurry. But too many fade quickly and even pass off the scene. An enthusiastic beginning with lots of big ideas and plans, lots of professing talk and energetic emotions. But when the going gets tough, many fall by the wayside and fall short and drop through the cracks. They have no staying power. They lack the virtue of endurance and they crumble under discipline. The battle overwhelms them. Authentic faith exhibits enduring hope and that hope pushes through the hardships that we encounter in a fallen world. It perseveres in persecution, which inevitably comes to those who are faithful. It responds positively to the fatherly discipline that we receive from our loving God during the journey that we all are on through this imperfect world. Hebrews 11 introduced us to lots of saints who endured and persevered and who responded well. Hebrews 12 turns the focus now on us. And Hebrews 12 answers the question, well then, so what? Given all that we've seen in Hebrews 11, so what? What now? In light of their examples of heroic faith, how should we lead our lives? In other words, Hebrews 11 is not merely history, it is exhortation. Chapter 12 begins, therefore, demanding that we deal with the implications of what we have learned from the faith of those who have gone before us, applying the lessons of their faith to our lives. Ancient runners competed all out in the races, The Greek word for race is agona. That gives us our word agony. The long foot race was agonizing. Becoming a Christian means that you and I have entered an arena where there is pain and heartache and sickness and sorrow and pressure and hardship and even death. It is there in the arena of real life that we run against formidable competition. It is there that our mettle, our courage, our fortitude is tried. Weary believers are encouraged to endure. Even when life is difficult, we are encouraged to go on by seeing the example of the Son of God here in the first three verses that we talk about today. And having the assurance 
This isn't quite so obvious, but having the assurance of the love of God in verses 4 to 13, which I believe we'll talk about next time. Yes, living the Christian life, running the race is hard, but our God will see us through accomplishing His purpose for our lives as we trust in Him by faith. So now let me return and let's walk through these opening few verses a little more slowly. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. These witnesses are, of course, the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, and really so many others who were not named there, but who have gone before us. Their presence spurs us on to do our best because they finished their race, even though, like us, they were weak failures in themselves. If King David who committed adultery and murder, finished. If John the Baptist, who has to be ranked as one of the weirdest personalities in history, finished. If John Mark, who was an immature quitter, finished. If the immoral woman of Luke 7, likely a prostitute, finished. Well, then I imagine we can finish our race too. So what's the big point, though, here in the first verse of chapter 12? It's, I think, this. If we are running this race correctly, we understand the context. We are in an arena running before a great cloud of witnesses. So I ask you, in what context, as you live your daily life, do you primarily see yourself? Do you see yourself living in the midst of a secular society that troubles you, that worries you, that sometimes overwhelms you with its materialism and sensuality and relativism? Do you see yourself, perhaps, as part maybe a small part, but part of a great corporation or organization with its mandates to conformity? Do you see yourself primarily as part of the family in which you grew up? Do you see yourself perhaps as part of the neighborhood in which you now live? Does a certain racial group or economic class, or social level define you. Whatever context you see yourself in dramatically, inevitably, dramatically shapes how you live. So Paul, here in Hebrews 12, in verse 1, points, I think, to a different context. We should see ourselves surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who bear testimony to true faith in the Lord. 
all Christians, it seems to me, should see ourselves in this context. This is the body to which we belong and whose approval we should court. This is the audience, as it were, before whom we live. A great arena filled with the beloved of God, the faithful of all the ages. And now is the time when you and I are running our race to the sounds, if you will, of their approval and encouragement. Though they are dead, they still speak. Look at verse 4 of Hebrews 11. This is how, it seems to me, we are being told to conceive of our lives. We belong to this noble company of God's people living in this world, but glorifying God through faith. It's all about that relationship to God of faith. That's the context of our lives. We are surrounded by those with whom we will spend eternity, our brothers and sisters in the faith with whom we will be forever long after everyone else is consigned to judgment. We should hear thus the voices of the faithful and conform to the pattern of faith, their faith, not to the pattern of this world. As then, and then rather, as we run the race, we are to, as the text tells us, lay aside every encumbrance, or maybe your passage says every weight, An encumbrance is an excess weight. Athletes in the first century, just like athletes today, when they train, when they work out, often use what are sometimes referred to as training weights to help them prepare for the competition they are to engage in. This is a little like, if you've been watching recently, baseball players using a heavy metal collar on their bats as they swing their bats just before it's their turn to come up and go to the plate. The author's point here in Hebrews is that we should remove any added burdens or encumbrances. These are not necessarily bad things, but we need to remove such things that might hold us back or weigh us down such that we would then be able to run the race of faith with full competence and capability. Anything that slows our progress in our faith, like an indifferent attitude, like a lack of mental discipline, like procrastination, like impatience, all encumbrances must go. We have to look at our lives and think hard, therefore, about what we're doing and get ruthless about what stays and what goes. And this will be different for different ones of us. So it doesn't do us a lot of good to look at our neighbor and think, well, I have to be just like him. We're not called to run the race in exactly the same way as the next person. So we, as I said, need to be ruthless about what should stay and what should go. Sometimes what needs to go may be a good thing in itself, because in our case, it's holding us back. Perhaps there is a particular friendship, a particular association, a particular place, a habit, a pleasure, an entertainment, a recognition even. Good things 
can even be needless baggage and unhelpful distractions that drag us down and keep us from surrendering all to Christ and following Him above all else. We must each examine ourselves and assess ourselves honestly. And next, we must deal with the sin that so easily entangles us. Now, sin is a far more serious matter than an encumbrance. Because sin entangles, if you take the image here, our feet and can bring us down to the ground such that we're no longer running the race at all. And encumbrance makes it more difficult for us to run. Sin knocks us out of running altogether if we allow it to go on undealt with. Those who take their sin lightly do so to their own peril. So let us flee temptation and oppose all sin. Indeed, by the power of the Spirit, let us do what, men? Kill sin. Just as we heard at the men's retreat, emphasized in so many great messages by both Pastor Eric and Pastor Eddie. Sin is never profitable. It is the agent of death in our world. It is the master of an untold number of slaves. The pleasures that sin offers, well, they're just false. And they're filled with deadly poison. So we must kill that sin. We must turn away from sin. We must repent of all sin. Verse 1 then closes... Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There is no such thing as a coasting Christianity. All true Christians are running a race and fighting a fight. All true Christians are to endure and persevere and run and fight and be alert and be strengthened. Don't drift. Don't neglect. Don't be sluggish. Run the race set before you. Don't stroll. Don't meander. Don't wander about aimlessly. Run as though you are in a literal race with a literal finish line, which, which upon that finish line, everything hangs. Run eagerly to get to the finish. And then note this. In our race, the Christian life race, we are not to compete against other Christians, trying to outdo each other in, say, righteousness or recognition or accomplishments. This isn't a race of works. This is a race of faith. We compete by faith, to be sure, but not with each other. Our competition is against Satan and his world system. And it's against our own sinfulness, often referred to in the New Testament as the flesh. Also recognize that the race we're running is not a 100-yard dash. It's not completed with a short burst of energy at one point. It's much more like a marathon that goes on and on. And our great virtue is not speed in our race, but endurance. Back in 1981, I don't know whether you will remember this, a man named Bill Broadhurst entered the Pepsi Challenge 10,000 meter, that's about 6.2 mile race in Omaha, Nebraska. Ten years earlier, 
1971, surgery for an aneurysm in Broadhurst's brain left him semi-paralyzed up and down his left side. On that July morning in 1981, Bill stood with 1,200 other men and women at the starting line. The gun sounded, the racers surged forward, and Bill, in his first step, threw his stiff left leg forward and pivoted on it as his foot hit the ground. His slow, awkward rhythm seemed to mock him as the pack of runners raced off rapidly ahead of him. But Bill Broadhurst wasn't racing against them. Sweat rolled down his face, pain pierced his ankle, but he kept moving. Some of the runners that day finished this race 6.2 miles in less than 30 minutes. After two hours and 29 minutes, Bill crossed the finish line dead last by himself. Although mightily exhausted, Broadhurst recognized a man approaching him from a small group of remaining bystanders. Bystanders. It was Bill Rogers, the famous marathon runner. Rogers draped his newly won medal around Broadhurst's neck, saying, you've worked a lot harder for this than I have. Bill Broadhurst's run wasn't fast, but it was glorious. Why? Because he never quit. He ran with endurance, and that's the way we must run for Jesus. Our abilities, our individual levels of running will be different, and that's not what the Lord's looking at. What he's looking at is, do you continue to run for me with the gifts and the abilities that I've given you or not given you specifically? The only way to endure in our race for Christ is to run in his strength. Running in our own strength inevitably falls short. And we can't do that because we are beset with weakness and sin. We must walk in his power by faith. Now... That sort of walking or running does not suggest that we are to be passive and we just let him do it for us. Those who were honored in Hebrews 11 weren't passive. They were all actively engaged, actively faithful. God is calling us today to run our race in much the same way. It will require of all of us an active, engaged faithfulness. So God has marked out a race for us. He has laid out a course for our lives. There are places that we will need to go. There are things that we will need to do. There are challenges that we will need to confront. We don't know, however, exactly where the race course, as it winds along in our lives, is going on our way to heaven. We don't know exactly where it's to be. It isn't really important for us to know that. We're called to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Lots of Christians put loads of time and effort into trying to figure out what specifically lies ahead for them. Our calling is to persevere in faith wherever it is that God takes us, wherever he leads. The context 
we are to see ourselves in, therefore, is important. But how we understand our calling in life is even more important. What is the purpose or the goal of your life? Is it to gain a certain amount of wealth? Is it to arise to a position of influence or power within your circle? Is it to be popular? Is it to enjoy maximum leisure or fun? These are all ways that unbelieving society defines success. But these are not the ways in which we are to think of our lives. What is liberating for us is to realize our true calling. That true calling is the race of faith for our living God, persevering in the various settings where God places us, holding fast our convictions and obeying his word in all the different settings and in all the different seasons of life, growing in grace and glorifying God through faith all the way to the end of our lives. That's our victory. Not worldly standards of success, but enduring in faith to the end. And now look at the text, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse 2 focuses on the ordeal of the cross, where Jesus' faith in his Father was put to the greatest of all tests. And it was given, his faith was, its most brilliant display. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders said of Jesus on that cross, he trusts in God, Matthew 27, verse 43. They said that, mocking him. But how true it was. He trusts in God. By faith, Jesus pleased God as Enoch did. Like Abraham, he looked forward to the city to come, and by faith he was willing to make the supreme sacrifice. By faith, Jesus, like Moses, set aside earthly glory that he might be numbered among the afflicted people of God and become their deliverer. By faith, Jesus made the sacrifice that Abel's faith presented. If the heroes of the Old Testament are lights testifying to faith in God, Jesus on the cross is the blazing sun bringing faith its most dazzling expression. Jesus is said to be the author or the founder and the perfecter of faith. He thus pioneers and originates faith. He takes the lead. We can't even believe without his enablement. He begins faith. He completes faith. We run the race by his grace, and his glory is thus displayed. Jesus endured both suffering and shame on the cross. It was by faith that Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, persevering to his appointed end, and thus entering into his glory in heaven. 
where he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God because he faithfully endured suffering and did not fear the world's contempt. He provides thus an example for us that we would bear the cross in our own lives, running the race faithfully for him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says it this way. You have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Jesus is our example in perseverance and also in spiritual joy. The Hebrews passage says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. This, when you think about it, is an amazing statement. It says a lot about his faith. We can conceive of Jesus' joy before the cross, I think, in a number of ways. He took joy in doing his Father's will. He said his very food was to do the will of his Father. John 4, verse 34. There is no joy like the accomplishment of a noble task. And of the noblest task of all eternity, Jesus would say, it is finished. Jesus also looked forward to his future reunion with the Father in heaven and to receiving his delight with great joy. He rejoiced at the knowledge of what his suffering and death would accomplish, namely the redemption of a people for himself. Jesus rejoiced because he saw the crown beyond the cross. He saw the purchase of his blood, the church, those of us who are connected to him by faith, those of us who would become and are his bride forever in the regenerated glory of an endless age to come. So Jesus is an example of our faith, but he's not only an example of our faith. He is the object of our faith. He waits at the finish line for us. It is to him and for him that we run. We endure, we persevere, because if we do it correctly, we want to know him. We want to join him. We want to share the blessings of his salvation. To be a Christian means to rely on his atoning blood and his finished work for our salvation. And we hold the gospel, this gospel, as the great treasure of our hearts. Thus, we want to be faithful to him. We desire to please and to serve him. And we endure to the end, eager to spend eternity with him. This is what Paul says of his own ambition. You know the passage. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God 
in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 12, 13, and 14. We fix our eyes on Jesus because he is the example and the object of our faith. We also fix our eyes on Jesus because he is the source of our faith. He's not only an example like some long-dead hero, nor is he merely the object of our faith like a philosophical ideal. Rather, he is the active recipient of our faith, active in inspiring and empowering faith in us because he lives now. Faith in Christ produces union with a living Lord who reigns in the heavens, who is seated at the right hand of the Father's throne in power. Therefore, when we fix our eyes on him, he works in us by his power, sending God's Holy Spirit to sustain us in our trials. Therefore, how essential is it for us to grasp the principle? As Christians, we live in the context of this great cloud of witnesses with a race to run with endurance, a race that will include suffering and shame, the suffering and shame of the cross that we represent, that we carry too. To run well, we must remove any hindrance and entangling sin. For this is already more than flesh can endure. Yet we are encouraged and we are empowered in our faith as we look to Jesus Christ. Our great example of faith, the object of faith, and the source of faith, its author, its perfecter, as he reigns in power on high in and for us. If you have never looked to Jesus in faith, if you have yet to enter this godly calling of all of those, past and present, who follow him, then this exhortation in our text applies especially to you. Look to Jesus, and you will find one who is altogether lovely, who is exemplifying life and death, transcending all others, and most important, one who suffered death himself, that you might be forgiven and have eternal life. Unless you look to faith in Christ, you will never know the life that is of God. And though you may enjoy this world for a season, there will be no crown for you at the end, but only judgment and the punishment that your sins deserve. Now, as we come to the third verse, we find a cure for weary hearts. Paul anticipates the problem, and he prescribes the cure. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose hearts. Verse 3 assumes something that every believer knows very well. Namely, from time to time, you and I simply grow weary. We can even be downcast while believing in Christ. 
If you feel this way, perhaps the most important thing I can start by saying is you are not exceptional. You are not different than the rest of us. We may not talk about it. We may not share it. But to feel downcast, to be weary, is common experience for all believers. This is something that you should expect, especially when faced with the prolonged difficulty or trials that are common to us in this life. Even the strongest Christians can experience spiritual depression. The cure is to consider Jesus in his own struggle with the opposition of the world. Now, this sounds very similar to the exhortation we just received in verse 2, but there is a different emphasis here in verse 3. In verse 2, the Greek means to look away from one thing to another. Keep looking away from distractions and fix our eyes on Christ. Look to another. Here in verse 3, the Greek means to look to and consider Jesus intently. There's an accounting term here related to the word logistics. When we log something in, we mean that a record should be kept of what transpired. The point is, we should meditate on, reflect on, take stock of Jesus' life and death as it relates to our own struggle. And especially remember that God ordained his suffering for his and for our glory in him. We are to remember as he did that beyond the cross, beyond the struggles, lies a crown. It was so for him and it will be so for us. We consider Jesus by consulting what scripture says about him. In the gospel accounts, we consider what he said. We consider what he did. We consider how God delivered him. In the epistles, we consider the significance of his life, of his death, of his resurrection. In the Old Testament, we see Christ in his work as he is prophesied and as he is represented in various types and symbols. You recall, and I've referred to this not so very long ago, in Luke 24, the two downcast disciples walking away from Jerusalem on the very day that Jesus was resurrected. They were weary. I suggest they had lost heart. But unbeknownst to them, Jesus himself, risen from the grave, came alongside them on the road. Jesus asked what it was that they were talking about. Luke tells us, they stood still looking sad. Verse 17. This is how Jesus finds us sometimes. Discouraged, standing still, not running the race as we should be. The two disciples told Jesus about a man from Nazareth that they thought would be the Messiah. But they added he had been arrested and killed. And they didn't understand confusing reports that had come to them that they'd heard about him being seen after he had been very obviously arrested and put to death. Jesus responded by pointing them to Scripture. 
beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Luke 24, verse 27. What Jesus did for them, you and I are to do for ourselves, seeking and finding him and contemplating his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection in the pages of God's word. When their little party arrived at their destination, Jesus revealed himself to these two formerly downcast disciples. And then he miraculously disappeared. Yet in spite of that direct encounter with the risen Lord, in spite of his dramatic and sudden disappearance, the two disciples, now greatly encouraged, marveled not at the supernatural experience they had just had. They didn't run out to tell everybody about the supernatural phenomenon they just witnessed. But they marveled at the things they had seen and heard in the scriptures. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Verse 32, Luke 24. This is what we will find when our hearts have grown cold on the long and sometimes difficult race that we are called to run as Christ's disciples. We are to open the scriptures and have them opened by our spiritual leaders. And Jesus teaches us of himself, no less than he did with those two disciples. And as we consider him in his sufferings for us, in his victory over sin and death, our hearts too are warmed and even can burn within us as this brings us to rejoicing as it should. If you want to live that way, with that kind of joy, with that sort of power for living, then I suggest, I implore you to fix your eyes upon Jesus, not on this world or anything in it, and consider from his word how great a Savior and Lord he really is. Let's pray. There is so much more that's coming, but there is not the time this day to cover it all. Lord, bring us together again that we may be encouraged by your example, by who you are, by all that you have done for us. And help us to reach back, not only as we hear it preached, but to reach back into your word day by day by day, that we may be encouraged and strengthened for the race that you have called us to, a race which is hard, which has difficulty, which can leave us at times weary and disappointed and even dejected. But again and again, you are there to strengthen us by your spirit, which we would partake of through prayer and your truth that we may run before you faithfully and be examples to a world that they might see you and know you and believe in you as we have. For this is the only way to life eternal. All other paths 
lead to destruction. Lord, help us to be that which you want us to be. Every bit as much as you have given us the wherewithal, encourage us in the use of it that we may be pleasing in your sight and that you may be glorified in all things, we pray in Christ. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction? It's a race in which we are to be active, in which we are to be faithful, and we can be because of his provision, who he is, and what he has given us. Go forth in that conviction and run for him, for his glory, depart in his peace. Amen.